I wanted to go to First Samuel chapter 15 this morning because uh, I mentioned at the end of last week um, an important message that I heard about 15 years ago that really, to this day, still stick, sticks with me. It's actually one of these scenes in the Bible that absolutely horrify me with the holiness of God. Uh, there's a few passages in Scripture that are like that, that uh, you, you are immediately stunned when you read this at how holy God is. One of those passages I remember uh, is David's uh, account of when they moved the Ark of the Covenant and they're moving it on the back of an ox cart, which is against the scriptures. And the ox cart pitches and the, and the ark shifts and Uzzah reaches out his hand just to simply steady the ark and boom, he's dropped dead like a, I mean, he's just dead on spot. And uh, they just stop everything. And it's just a staggering thought that the holiness of God is so pure and so unapproachable and so staggering that it just uh, brings a sense of awe and fear intense fear and dread um, from the holiness of God. That's, that's one scene that just sticks in my head. But this one leaves an indelible image on the heart and shocks your senses and leaves an image that you just can't forget. Every time I read this text in 1 Samuel 15, I can't help but fall under the conviction instantly that our holy God hates sin with such a perfect and thorough hostility that he commands his people to hunt down every last remaining vestige of sin and exterminate it with extreme prejudice. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, God commands his people, Saul, the king at the time, to run down the Amalekites. The Amalekites have been under the death sentence of God for 300 years because they had been awaiting Israel's exodus out of Egypt, and they were sniping off the people of Israel from behind, taking out their weak and their slow and their young, their young and their women, and like a coward, attacking the rear of the camp as it moved into the wilderness of the time. And you remember the story of Rephidim, the battle of Rephidim and Joshua and Ur holding up the hands of Moses, and they prayed that the sun would not set, and it didn't. And uh, that was a battle with the Amalekites, okay? At the end of that battle, uh, we read that the Lord, in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, it says that the Lord solemnly swore at the end of the battle of Rephidim that he would utterly blot out the enemy about the memory of Amalek from under heaven, the Lord has sworn the Lord will war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now, that's not something you want to have written over you. It's a veritable death sentence. Now, the Lord speaks through his servant, the prophet Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, and tells Saul that, Saul, you will bring the sword of the Lord's sworn justice down upon the neck of the Amalekite nation for their pitiless and violent attack against the people of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. For 300 years, the Amalekites had been living on borrowed time and were under the abiding wrath of God for their cruelty, sin, and violence. And they were a condemned people when God's clear command was that here in 1 Samuel 15 that every man, every woman, and even every child and infant were to be killed. Nothing that belonged to the Amalekites would be allowed to remain, even down to their sheep and their donkeys. Now, this is, this is, it was, it was considered, God considered it all accursed and devoted to destruction before Yahweh. So, as I said, this shocks your sensibility, especially as a modern 21st century Christian. And it makes me begin to realize that my sense of justice is not accord always with God's sense of justice. Uh, you might say, well, how could this be possibly justice in any true sense? I mean, God's decreeing the death of women and babies. Uh, how can this possibly be just? 
Well, the Amalekites were a truly evil people. As I said, they were merciless. They sniped off Israel's weakest at uh, picking off their stragglers from the rear of the camp, which no doubt among them were women and children as well. They were killing women and children and older folks. The entire nation was merciless and savage, and they were totally depraved, every single one of them. So since God is perfectly just and holy and righteous, what else could he do but to bring justice and um, right the wrongs there? How could he not wipe out those who had transgressed? So rather than ask the question, how could a loving God do that? We might better ask the question, how could a God like that allow such an evil people to enjoy 300 years of existence in the promised land and all the blessings of that land with prosperity without any seeming repercussions for so long? They must have never expected that their acts would be, would be back, uh, backlashed upon them. No, God didn't just decree the demise arbitrarily. He appropriately and fittingly give the, gave the consequences for the crimes that they committed against the holy God. Just as scripture tells us today, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that's consistent. God is a consistent and uh, impartial judge. He judges all by that same standard. All sin will incur the penalty of death. So we are only two verses into this chapter, First chapter, First Samuel verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and I'm growing completely unprepared, I'm sorry, I'm growing completely aware that my sense of justice doesn't always accord with God's, although God cannot be wrong in this matter. God's policy with the Malachites is a policy of war, total warfare. If you know that idea, that idea of total warfare in wartime is not let's have have battle with armed soldiers, but let's let's go into the civil, the civilized areas, the populated areas where we war against an entire people, and this is God's approach. While our approach to mortification of sin is at best just a policy of accommodation, and amnesty with sin, we cohabitate with the Malachites of our sin and let the insurgent dwell dwell up in our lives and allow it to get comfortable. Like Saul, we, too, don't have the intestinal fortitude to carry out the full sentence of death on our sin, in our flesh. We rationalize it. Even though we haven't been 100% obedient to God, we will somehow find, we think that God is somehow going to give us favor for at least having good intentions regarding our sin. Like Saul, we go about the show of worship, make a presumptuous attempt to stand before the Lord, perhaps try to save face or to... Have the, keep up the appearances of all being well, but while Amalekite, but the Amalekites of sin are still living and breathing in our lives. They fear no threat from us. Perhaps we have a hidden secret sin in our lives today that would have been, should have been killed a long time ago. Instead, we've nurtured it and fed it and ensured its protection, like Saul did with the king Agag. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read that... Uh, Instead of destroying all the Malachites, Saul keeps one particularly influential one alive, the king, King Agag. Um, even though Saul spared the life of the king of King Agag, perhaps I don't know as a, perhaps as a trophy to his own vanity, the success of his conquest as Israel's first king, he kept the best of the sheep and cattle under the pretense that he would offer these as sacrifices to the Lord. And when Samuel shows up in just a few days, later than expected, but nonetheless still shows up, Saul is in for a rude awakening. You remember the story, right? 
Saul's failure to kill every last remaining Amalekite, especially their king, was absolutely unacceptable to the Lord. Saul refused to worship with Saul. Or sorry, Samuel refused to worship with Saul, despite his desperate pleading, "Come worship with me." He, Samuel says, I, "I won't do this." He turns his back, and Saul reaches out, grabs the cloak of Samuel, and Samuel turns, and as he, tear, he turns, he tears the robe, and Samuel turns back and gives him this ominous warning and says so has the lord rent away the kingdom from you sam or saul and tells him that he will no longer be king and he's appointed someone better than you to be king in your place so while saul turns to go up and worship alone to the altar samuel does what was necessary and grabs a sword and he calls for the king Ag- agag to come he says bring me agag the king of the malachites and agag came to him cheerfully What's going on here? Agag perhaps thinks the heat of the battle's over, everything's fine. Saul, Saul has given him pretty good accommodations, taking good care of him. He thinks, okay, well now surely the, he says, surely the bitterness of death is past. He's ready to come to an agreement. He's ready to seek some kind of uh, refuge or um, asylum from Samuel. And rather than receive that, Samuel says to him, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord of Gilgal. As I think about that, in John MacArthur's sermon, Agag, uh, Hacking Agag to Pieces, he, said, he uses this account as an interesting illustration. He says, there are some Malachites running around loose in your life. And though there was a great and glorious triumphant defeat at the time of salvation, there is necessity that remaining sins be hacked to pieces, or they will revive. They will plunder our hearts and sap our spiritual strength. We cannot be merciful with the agags in our life. We cannot be merciful with the remaining sins of our life, or they will return and create an insurrection and rebellion to attempt an attempt to destroy us. Interesting analogy here. The distinctive behavior of those who are saved and those who are victorious over sin is that they're continually putting their evil deeds to death, killing them. A true believer will not act like Saul, who wanted to pamper and preserve Agag, but he will act like Samuel, who hacked him without mercy into pieces. Beloved, you can't tame the flesh. You can't make it a house pet. You can't coexist with it. You can't say, well, there's only a few of them out there. Let them run around. They're not going to harm anybody. Paul says if you, you better get after all of them and kill them just as God instructed his people to do with these marauding Amalekites. In John Owen's book, Mortification of Sin, he is classically known for this famous phrase that Christian, you ought to be always killing sin or it will be killing you. And only when our, 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 our work is only half our work is done if we quit before the enemy is dead. For when sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. That's a, I think that's a very poignant and very forthright way to think about how we deal with sin in our lives. I like this thing that Mark Hager says occasionally from time to time. He says, there must always be a death before there's a new life. There has to be mortification before there's a new life. Okay, You have to understand that this is the purpose of God in, in how we treat our sin. We don't play patty cake with it. We don't throw sticks at it. We don't pretend like it's a non-issue. But we take it head on with um, mercenary intentions, okay? 
So I wanted to look at this week and just look at practically, how does the Bible tell us we should mortify our sin? What are the means and the weaponry that are given to us by which we should pursue this mortification? How do you actually get victory over sin? Okay, we, we, I think we'd all agree if we surveyed the room that we all agree sin's bad, my sin is bad. I'll even go so far to say is I'm sorry for my sin, I've repented of it, but I don't know how to kill it. I don't know how to end its reign in my life. How do I end its control and dominating power over my my thoughts and my motives and my passions and my lusts. How do I do that? Well, Scripture tells us at least, I'm just going to kind of overview eight ways that I think, based on some eight primary passages I would take someone to. Of course, I'm going to give you a high-level overview, and this would be not what I would say to someone individually, but just to give you the overarching concepts of what you're going to be thinking about when you're thinking about actually killing sin. The first thing you should see is that you mortify sin through faith. And I may not get through them all in the time going, so I'm just going to overview them here with you. Through faith, the power of the weapon of faith, through familiarity with your temptation. That is, you've been through the temptation cycle over and over again. You know how temptation stages itself up. There's a sort of a template, I think, at least in my life, there's sort of a template by which I can see later in reflection on my sin when I sin. I can see how things sort of went astray. I can see how things sort of happened. And how I kind of walked into the trap ahead of the time. I mean, I could see sort of things setting, staging themselves up. So we're going to look at the temptation. Through flight, fleeing temptation is an appropriate way to mortify sin. And with certain types of sin, we'll even look at uh, flight is the, your only immediate option when it comes to certain sin. That's how you kill it. You flee it. You get away from its power and control and influence. There's other ways. Through the faithfulness of God that provides a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 10. Through foresight, that is by getting up in the morning perhaps and preparing yourselves by donning the armor of God, right? There's a whole passage in Ephesians chapter 6 that talk about taking up the full armor, which is all preparatory in readiness to stand to it in the fight against your sin. And so I would be spending time with somebody looking to kill sin by walking through Ephesians 6 in some ways, and thinking about what it means to place, put that armor on spiritually. Also, through what you, how are you, what are you feeding? Okay, if you feed a lust, guess what happens? It grows, right? If you feed a desire, if you feed one of your passions, if you feed something you, that's a sin, it gains more, greater and greater control till it's, till it's unmanageable. You can't manage it anyway, but you at least lose the illusion that you can manage it when you feed it. Okay. So how do you feed it? The Bible tells us that those who sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And those who sow to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. So we're talking about feeding the spirit versus feeding the flesh. And then lastly, one of the interesting things that t- uh, for mortification of sin that are given to us by Peter and, and uh, Titus here is that one of the things that helps us pursue a motivation for this mortification is keeping a future focus that we believe in the imminent, at any moment, return of Christ, that any moment he could come. And when he comes, we pray that he comes, he finds us so we will not be ashamed at his coming. And so there's a lot of opportunity there to think about when you're focused on the soon, or the immediate, put it, the immediate, or imminent, pardon me, imminent return of Christ, you're, you are focused on the future, and that helps mo- motivate you in your avoidance of sin and the killing of it. Okay, so how do I mortify sin? In case I don't get through all of it, that's sort of the over, high-level overview. 
This wonderful, precious treasure of a verse in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, tells us that the first weapon you have in your arsenal is faith. Your faith. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This, is, this verse actually overlays and dovetails perfectly with the abiding in Christ sermon you'll hear coming okay, this morning. Christ lives in you, the believer, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, there it is, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the first thing we see in this passage here is our union with Christ. That is, the power for your change and for your growth comes from outside of you. And it comes specifically in this passage clearly by faith, by believing certain spiritual realities that even though they aren't tangible and visible and something you can actually see or experience you know, literally, they are nonetheless actualities that change the whole sanctification equation. Christ now indwells your life. You are inhabited by the res- risen and glorified and powerful Christ after salvation. So while you stood powerless against sin, you now have the victor over sin indwelling in your life. It says that so much here. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. That, that suggests that I, that's your old self, the old you, the one who you once were before you came to Christ. Presumably you've come to Christ this morning. That old you was crucified with Christ. You were joined with him in that death. So the old you who once was is now dead. It's been crucified. He, he's been crucified. He no longer lives. He no longer exists. That old me doesn't exist anymore. He's been put to death with Christ. And he says, it's no longer I who live. That is, the old man doesn't live anymore. He says, but Christ lives in me. Now, the, the me there is the new me, the new self, the new man, right? Christ now inhabits in me. He lives inside of me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is the, lives in me. The new man is indwelt by the resurrected Christ himself. And he... It makes the crucial difference in making the continued battle with sin against against sin possible. You can yourself kill sin, but you can, by Christ's cross and by Christ's inhabiting power in your life, defeat the remaining elements of sin in your flesh. To suggest that you can mortify sin apart from the indwelling Christ is descended to legalism and perfectionism. And this is what happens with a lot of sanctification teaching. They leave out that crucial difference that it's Christ and faith in his work, his cross work, that actually accomplishes the battle with sin with, for me. I'm not passive in the battle, but I'm participating with Christ by, his, by faith in his finished work. And through that, sin is being killed all over the place in my life. But if I neglect that truth, if I don't practice faith, it becomes work. Right? It becomes another legalistic system by which I'm trying to attain favor with God. And that was the problem with the Galatians. That's why Paul was preaching this to the Galatians, because they had forgotten this important central truth. Okay? So, until then, this life you live in the flesh is led by faith. Just as you received this new life by faith, when you came to Christ, came by faith, just as you received this new life by faith, so you must also live it by the same kind of faith. You don't believe in Christ once and then move on from there into works. The entire Christian life is, is an experience lived by the same faith. He says this in uh, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with. We no longer be slaves to sin. 
Um, John Owen says this, and I pray this, I, w- I want this to be true over in my life. I want this to be the final statement of my life. To, uh, and I know it will be, because in glory, this will be true for all of us. Live in the light of Christ's great work, and you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. You will live to see that in eternity someday. So take heart. Uh, the battle with sin goes hard, and it's difficult, but it will not be forever. <laughs> and Christ's work will finally slay it, which is a wonderful truth and gives a great deal of hope. And I know, by the way, I noticed here that it says that in this passage, Galatians 2.20, that the purpose is, let me back up and look at this. I love this. Don't, don't neglect this last phrase, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christians, we forget this, okay? We think that the attitude of God towards you in your sin as a Christian is that God is primarily seething and hostility and can't wait to pull out his club to bash your head in over your sin. And that's not the attitude of Christ for your sin at this moment. Now, don't get me wrong. He doesn't indulge in your sin any, any more than he <laughs> accepts the sin of a lost man, but his approach to you is different. He has moved towards you in your sin by a fathomless love that seeks your rescue. He seeks your deliverance. He moves towards you in your sin. But not to express a great disapproval of you, but out of an interest to extricate you from the entrapment and the snaggling of sin that remains in your flesh. That's an important thing to keep in mind. His love for you will not allow him to not get involved with you in sin. That's why he pursues his children in chastisement. He pursues, he pursues his children. Every son he loves, he scourges, the Bible says. He, he chastens them because he loves them. It's evident proof that he, you are a son of God. So, the second thing I want to see, I, I just don't want to lose that in the process of talking about mortification of sin. Sometimes Christians can get thinking, you know, God must really hate me. How could I possibly be saved? How could God even love me? He must not, he can't even stand the sight of me. And there's a lot of despairing hope, uh, loss of hope there. And I don't want them to lose sight of that precious truth in that verse, tagged on the end, but nonetheless critical to see there. So we mortify sin by faith. The same faith that saved me is the same faith that necessary is going to help me sanctify and mortify my sin. Uh, and I'm trusting the Christ's finished work, not my own works. It's not self-effort that's going to get me mortify my sin. It's Christ, and I have the power accessible to, to me by him indwelling in my life through faith. Second one is through familiarity with temptation. And I'm going to go to this passage, James chapter 1, which I think, again, every Christian needs to probably memorize James 1, <laughs> the entire chapter. But specifically, these verses we're going to look at in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Uh, once again, John Owen says this, Be intimately acquainted with the ways, the wiles, the advantages, the occasions which give lust its success. Find out the subtleties and the, the policies and the depths of any dwelling sin to consider where its greatest strength lies, how it uses the occasions and opportunities and temptations to gain an advantage over you. So just like you're, if you're in wartime, you're studying the enemy. You're looking at their tactics. You're looking at how they stage up their forces on the field. You're watching how they move and how they make their uh, uh, staging for attack. You're watching temptation like that. You know that you have particular susceptibilities in certain areas, certain weaknesses in your flesh that are probably, they might be unique to you and they're not the same for everybody else, but you know where those weaknesses are. At least you should be. 
and you're watching to see how, how, how does this temptation get such a power over me? And if it's a virtue of the fact that I'm in a wrong place at the wrong time, or I'm not prepared myself that morning, get myself in the frame of mind to battle with sin, or battle with my flesh, or whatever it might be, you are taking steps to not put yourself in the, in the under temptations, uh, you know, step into the trap. You're not, you're not going to take the bait for the trap. That, is a sin, that your flesh is laying for you. You're, you're being intimately acquainted with all the ways. And as I put it here, you are being familiar with the temptation. I call the James chapter 1, uh, this text, the modus operandi of, the, of your flesh. This is, how you, this is the MO of your flesh. This is how your flesh operates. And you need to know this about yourself. Okay? What's it say here? It says, Let no one say that when he's attempted, he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Remember that. Temptation is not coming from God. Do not misappropriate what source the temptation is arising from. It's not coming from God. It's not coming from the devil. It's not coming from the world primarily, most often. It can, but not often. Most often it's arising from within your own flesh. That's what James is going to tell us. He says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own, what? His own lust. So there's the source of temptation is is your flesh it's not god and the seduction of your lust comes through comes through your desires i've I've said this before to you guys before that if you can understand what you think you need and you want and you desire if you understand those things things that you think you need want and desire you will be better prepared to deal with temptation because temptations opportunities are going to try to aim at your desires at your lusts at your wants okay if it can make itself appealing to you, then it's going to gain an advantage. Your habitual sin traps you by baiting the jaws of the trap with something that appeals to your desires. Okay, The bait in the sin's trap is something that entices you and carries you away. It makes its introduction to you, by the way, of something in which you desire. And it not always is something that is obviously wrong. It could be, it could be something that could be innocent of itself. The desire for significance, the desire for uh, love, the desire for um, respect, the desire for um, control. These things are all the bait in the trap, okay? And you desire it, and you walk right into the trap, and it slams shut on you, okay? It is this lust or desire, if you will, that lies before sin, as James tells us, and then sin gives birth to death. So it's at the desire level that we want to be most vigilant because it's there at the desire level that we are most easily deceived. Remember how Eve was tempted by, because the fruit says, this says in Genesis, the fruit was desirable, right? So the idea that, the first of all, the temptation wouldn't have appealed to her if it wouldn't first appeal to something in her desires, her lust. Okay, so be mindful of that. What you want is Satan's opportunity, or it's not just Satan. It's your flesh it takes the opportunity of something you desire to try to launch an attack. What you think you deserve, what you think you're owed, what you think your rights are, all those things also become part of this leverage that, the, that your flesh can use to get you to step into the trap. So practically speaking here, uh, here's some questions you should be asking yourself. These are questions I try to remember to ask when I'm facing temptation. What are some questions? Number one, 
I want to know, what, what is that particular sin so desirable to me? What am, I, what am I finding attractive about that? Why am I thinking about it that way? What appeals to me so much that I'm willing to engage in it? Uh, what can I do to embitter my own taste for it? I want, you know, if it's something bad for me, I want to find ways to make it so it doesn't taste so good. I'm going to try to do something to try to make that miserable. I want to make that sin miserable to engage in. I want to make it difficult. I want to weaken the appeal of it. How can I cultivate holy desires in place of these fleshly ones? How does that sin carry me away every time? How does it always present itself attractive to me? You would think I would learn after going through that cycle again and again. It seems like I should learn. Now, how come it gets me every time? Is it at certain times when I'm more fleshly minded? You guys know that what the flesh is weak. Jesus told us the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. When you're tired, you're exhausted, when you're not prepared mentally, that's when you're susceptible. Okay? When you're stressed, overwhelmed, you're relying on your own strength, guess what? You're wide open for attack. Your flesh will seize the opportunity. So, mindful of certain times, certain activities that I'm distracted and I'm not practicing spiritual mindedness. Are there, what cues am I giving to my flesh to increase the appetite for sin? Maybe I'm just being lazy. I'll tell you this. Uh, I remember, I can't remember who said this. Maybe it was Richard Baxter who said that the idle man tempts Satan to tempt him. <laughs> That's right. The idle man, the man who's lazy, tempts the devil to tempt him, or tempts his own flesh even, to tempt him. Okay? So be careful about that. What am I giving my flesh to cue up the appetite? How do I cut off what feeds those appetites and desires? And how do I weaken that allurement, even if I have to hack it into pieces? Like, I parse this thing. I figure out, okay, well, if I'm not rested and I'm not uh, mindful, I'm out of my, I haven't been in devotions, I haven't been in church, I haven't been in, you know, I'm thinking through, these are ways in which sin has sort of staged its attack, and I want to hack that off by cutting it down to pieces and, and taking action with each of those individual elements of the, of the temptation. So I'm familiar with temptation. I want, to, I want to choke it off bit by bit, hacking it to pieces, like Samuel did for Agag. The third way is through flight. Through flight. Now, there are particular sins. The Bible tells us that flight is the only legitimate way to mortify the sin. Uh, it says here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Now flee, flee youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful lusts. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 says, But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance, and gentleness. Again, admonition to flee. Uh, 1 10, Corinthians 10, 14 says, Flee from idolatry, my beloved. Flee immorality. For every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So particularly in these four verses we just looked at, and there are many, many more, you can see that there's specific sins like immorality and idolatry that are so pernicious and so pervasive that will weaken you over time. They have the power to haunt you and overpower you quickly. So especially if you're unprepared, you may be able to resist steadfastly in the beginning, but these particular temptations are very deceptive and over time will overwhelm. So you don't have time to sit around and stand. You, you think about Joseph. I mean, Joseph's like, man, I'm out of here. He beat feet and got, got lost real fast, as, as quickly as he could, until he couldn't. 
Okay? So you flee, you run, you, you escape, you put yourself out of the control influence of sin. You, you don't allow those opportunities. And as Galatians tells us, Paul tells the Galatians, he says, don't make, oh, sorry, that's in Romans. Romans 14, 13, 14 says, don't make provisions for the flesh. Don't give an opportunity to it. You flee. The fourth one is through fear. Through fear, and I'm going to use Proverbs 8.13 for this. The fear of the Lord does something to your attitude about sin. It causes you to absolutely well up in you an absolute hatred for evil. Now, if you've ever hated anything in your life, <laughs> I don't know that you've ever hated evil, hated sin to the degree you've hated that thing. Hatred of evil is the absolute polar opposite of, of, of love. So fear of the Lord generates this hostility towards evil. I don't want this in my life. I hate it. I don't want it to have hold in me. I hate every false way, the psalmist would say. It's an abiding fear of God that prompted Joseph to flee from Potiphar's wife. In Genesis 39.9, it says, There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you're his wife. And then what is it? what's his reasoning? How can I do this thing, this great evil and sin against God? It's God. The fear of God is driving him, right? So fear is a powerful motivator. Through faithfulness is the last uh, couple of these here. I'm, I'm going to get through them all today, but faithfulness. Now, wonderful uh, assurance here in this verse. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. That's a wonderful relief, isn't it? There is nothing that you are facing, no temptation you're facing that hasn't been faced by generations and generations and generations of Christians before you. You're not exceptional. <laughs> you're not unusual. You're not odd. You're not weird. Okay? And you suffer in secret thinking, if anybody knows that I'm suffering with this temptation, people are going to ostracize me and think I'm odd. No. <laughs> Every temptation you've ever faced is common to man. And God is faithful. That's the thing you need to remember. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, provide a way of escape. That is to say, God provides a means of deliverance. Now, don't think that means the deliverance is going to drop out of the sky. If you're, if you're neck deep in a temptation and you're like, I'm already in the act of setting myself to do this sin, that somehow God's going to drop out of the sky this miraculous you know, escape hatch. No, the, the way of escape comes through preparation. Embedding yourself in the word, preparing yourself, things, saying things, reminding yourself of the truth of God's word, framing up your mind and your heart so that you have the way of escape at the ready when it comes. You have triggers to pull when that temptation comes in its full strength and you make, a beat, you, you make, a, you make an escape by God's provision. And he says, by that way, you are able to escape it. Christ resisted sin. He resisted sin all the way to his death. So should we never give up the fight until we breathe our last breath. I ask you, is it hard to, to, to withstand temptation? Is it really that hard? I think of this verse all the time when I think about that with me. Hebrews 12.4 says, you have, not, you have not yet resisted to the shedding of blood and striving against your sin. And that is to say, you haven't shed a single drop of blood for your sin yet. How can you claim that it's that hard? Come on, it's, it's, it's Christ who, who shed the blood for sin. That's, that's the reality of this. I have him inside of me. His indwelling power resides and is available and accessible to defeat the sin. Through foresight. By that, I mean through preparation. Remember all the, the armor of God? You put on the full armor of God. Three, uh, twice it says in that chapter that you put on the whole thing, not bits and pieces of it. 
Uh, you're making adequate preparations for a sin's attack through uh, feeding. There's lots of verses here through feeding. What are you feeding your what are you feeding the flesh? When you feed the flesh, it takes on a life that is beyond your ability to control. Okay? Perhaps you're doing things to weaken your your conscience. You're doing things that could be slowly over time wearing down your ability to resist and fight. You're not mortifying the sin because you maybe you're just focused on one sin and you're letting all these other areas of your life down. <laughs> Don't sow to the flesh. Don't allow anything that allows for the apple flesh to gain control. If, you have, if you're angry, if you're anxious, if you're uh, frustrated at work, those things weaken your ability to withstand other temptations that are coming from within your own flesh. So sow to the Spirit. That means you, you have to have access to the Lord. In the chapter before this, Ephesians 6, I was telling you about the Lord's armor. But the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's your weapon against and mortifications, your weapon against sin. You've got to not neglect the scriptures. Okay? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Then lastly, the future focus. I'm going to close on this. I know I went through these quickly. And there's so much depth to each one of these. We could we can plumb the depth some other time, perhaps. But one of the things that we remember is that the Lord is soon returning at any moment, at any time. And for John tells his, tells his precious little ones, he says, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. The thought of him coming and us engaging in sin, the sin for which he died is a, is a horrifying thought to us and it powerfully motivates us to maintain vigilance and to work in cooperation with him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not appeared yet as yet what we will be. We, we're not yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's a that, We'll maybe talk about that in the final message that I have in this series, which is coming soon. The power of beholding Christ. Beholding Christ is constantly talked about as a remedy for mortification, how, how to defeat sin. Fixed, eyes fixed upon Christ. Uh, what does that entail? How is that practiced? And everyone that has this hope fixed, fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And again, lastly, Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Grace teaches us this. Grace doesn't teach us to engage in those things. It teaches us to deny these things. And we do this while looking for the blessed hope in the appearing, we're looking for that appearing, right? Uh, he could come any moment, and today's one day closer to that moment. Appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. God help us as we begin to think through these many different weapons. These are powerful weapons to demolishing the strongholds, 1 Corinthians 10. These are not carnal weapons that are weak through the flesh. These are spiritual, powerful weapons that can be useful when employed. When you, act, when you actively engage your flesh with these weapons, you will have victory because Christ is, is, is going to empower you, okay? And so each of these would be helpful if you were dealing with a particular habituated sin or a practiced sin or a dominating sin. I would look at these passages with great depth, take a week and meditate upon these things and glean from them the truths that are going to enable you to, to uh, withstand and to fight or flee 
if the case may require. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to be in your word this morning. I pray this is somewhat helpful and even just a quick overview of these things. May it trigger something that the Holy Spirit can use uh, to operate deadly violence against sins within our flesh. Lord, we want to hack these things to pieces. Uh, We don't want to let any of them survive. We want our heart against sin to match yours. And Lord, help us. We are so powerless without you. And Lord, forgive us when we fail. We thank you for the kindness and the grace of God, the loving uh, chastening of your hand, which brings us back into alignment with your word. Help us not to neglect these areas, to feed the flesh this week. Help us to sow to the spirit and reap from the spirit life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.